Well, good morning. It's good to see you all today. If you're new here, my name is James. I am one of the pastors here. And if you're new, you don't know that we have been going through the book of Matthew for 16 months now. Woo! Chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We've covered the difficult verses and passages. We've covered the easy, what, maybe one passage that we've seen the whole book. I think the genealogies was fun. And then from there on, it's just challenging and hard seeing who Jesus is, how he lives, and then understanding what that means for me and how to live. And we are now finally coming close to the end. We're at that point in the journey where they've told you, turn your, put your seat back to the full upright position, stow away your tray table, put away your large electronic devices. We are coming in for a landing. We are now about 15 hours away from, well, not from being done. In Jesus' life, we're about 15 hours away from Jesus' crucifixion, all right? It is Thursday. We are coming up. Jesus is crucified at 9 o'clock on Friday morning. But there are still some very important things that we have to learn and understand from Jesus. And today is going to be one of those super important ones for us to, us to understand as we talk about the Last Supper, which sometimes we know today as communion. But what I'm going to ask you to do, we're going to start out a little bit different today. I'm going to ask you to keep a finger in Matthew 26, because that's where we're going to end up. Then I'm going to ask you to go right in your Bible over a few books to, Matthew, or I mean, to Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. We're going to get there in just a minute because what we're going to do is have you ever been on a plane or in a hotel or just flipping through the TV and a movie comes on and it's like maybe the third movie of a trilogy. Think something like Lord of the Rings or something, maybe a Harry Potter that's longer, or maybe how many movies are there in the Fast and the Furious now, like 27 or something like that. But you, you end up watching the final one, but you haven't watched the first two you can usually get the gist of that story because usually the movies are a self-contained unit. But throughout the movie, you'll see flashbacks. You'll see allusions back to the previous movies. And if you haven't seen those, you miss the depth of those flashbacks. You miss the depth of those allusions. You miss the overarching meta story that goes across the movies. And so in the same way, today... We're going to be looking at a passage that has a lot of flashbacks to the Old Testament. And if we were to just to dive in here, we would miss the bigger picture of what God has been doing since the creation of the world. And so keep, your, keep there in Hebrews 9. I'm going to go back to Exodus for a minute, and then I'll come get you guys in a minute, all right? So <laughs> Exodus chapter 12, what has been going on is if you're in salt and light, you would know that you've been studying about how Jacob and his family came down into Egypt. There'd been a really bad famine. They couldn't live in the land of Canaan anymore. And so they came down to join Joseph in Egypt. There's about 70 people that did that. And over the years, they multiply. They have kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. So they go from 70 people to hundreds of people to thousands of people to hundreds of thousands of people to the point that the king of Egypt, Pharaoh as he is called, starts to get nervous that there's so many Israelites. If an, a foreign invader comes in and attacks Egypt, he's worried the Israelites might join with that foreign invader and attack them. He's worried that the, the Israelites might start outnumbering the Egyptians and then they could take over the kingdom. And so to stop that, he puts them into forced labor. He puts them into brutal slavery, building storehouses, store cities 
for him. But they keep multiplying, having more kids and grandkids. And so he institutes a genocide, an ethnic cleansing, where he tells them every single baby boy that is born must be killed. And so he starts wiping them out, killing off the boys so they won't have an army, so they can't keep um, making new babies, and they won't keep growing. He's trying to get rid of the Israelites. God hears their groaning. He sees their pain and their suffering, and he raises up a man named Moses to come and save them. So Moses comes in through the power of God, does nine plagues on the Israelites. He turns the water to blood. He kills all their livestock, destroys the crops, brings in frogs and lice and flies and all kinds of crazy things happen. Nine plagues, but Pharaoh is so stubborn, Pharaoh still says, I will not let the Israelites go. So finally now in Exodus 12, God says, I'm going to send one more plague. About midnight, I'm going to send out the angel of death to go over the whole land of Egypt. And the firstborn of all the animals and all the people for the Egyptians and the Israelites is going to be killed by this angel of death. But God in his provision provides a way out. He tells them, kill a lamb. And then he says this, take some of the blood of the lamb, put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. So he tells them, kill the lamb, take some of the blood, put it on the top of the door frame, put it on the side of the door frame, stay inside the house that night. He says, on the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. So what he does is he says, put the blood. When the angel of death comes, he'll see the blood. He will pass over you. And he institutes an annual festival, a holiday for them that they call Passover, commemorating when the angel passed over their houses. And all the Israelites did it. Not a one of their firstborn died because they all had faith in the blood of the lamb to save them. Save them. God tells them, when you celebrate the Passover in the future and your son asks you, why do we do this? He says, on that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Then in Deuteronomy, Moses reminds the Israelites, Deuteronomy 16:3, so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. So he sets up this Passover as an annual holiday, an annual feast to help them remember when God saved them out of slavery, when God gave them freedom. It's kind of like our July 4th, where we celebrate our freedom, our independence from England, but there's a lot more spiritual overtones to this celebration, remembering when God brought them out of slavery. God instituted three festivals right in a row. And this is important because we're gonna, you're going to see this come into play when we get back to Jesus. So the Passover was supposed to be on the 14th of the month, Nisan. They would sacrifice the Passover lamb on the 14th. The next day, the 15th, would start the Festival of Unleavened Bread, where they would eat bread with no yeast for seven days. That first day, the 15th, was a Sabbath, a day of rest. And then the 16th 
was the feast of first fruits where they would sacrifice a lamb and they would bring in unleavened bread and wine to give God the first fruits, the best of what he had provided for them. So these festivals now have been combined kind of in a one eight-day celebration. So God brings them out of Egypt. He saves them. He brings them through the Red Sea. He does a miracle. He parts the water. They walk through on dry ground. The Egyptians, Pharaoh changes his mind and says, you know what? I'm going to kill them anyways. And so he comes and chases them, goes into the Red Sea. The waters crash back, washes away Pharaoh and his army, gets rid of their, their slave masters. Now they are free. And God brings them out to a mountain called Mount Sinai, and he establishes a covenant with them, kind of a contract showing the terms of the agreement between them. And there's several aspects or terms of this agreement. I want to highlight just four because they're going to come into play for us as we get back to the life of Jesus. So first off, this covenant is an external covenant. If you're there in Hebrews, look at chapter 9 and verse 10. He calls these laws external regulations applying until the time of the new order. He establishes 613 laws that the Israelites have to follow. Everything from civil laws to social laws to health laws to dietary laws, all kinds of laws, 613, these external regulations that tell them how they have to live. So the old covenant is an external covenant. Second, the old covenant showed them their sin and death. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So the law shows us our sin. When I read, you shall not covet, I know God's standard is I can't covet. So if I covet my neighbor's car or his house or his job or his money or whatever it is that I covet, I can see that I am falling short of God's standard. I am breaking the law. It shows me my sin, and then it shows death through the sacrifices, because what they had was a temporary, continual sacrificial system. They had to sacrifice day after day, week after week, year after year, for every time they sinned. Hebrews 10, there, if you're still in Hebrews, look at verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews 10. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifice is repeated endlessly year after year. It can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So he says, look, if sacrificing a goat or a sheep could wipe away your sins, they wouldn't have to keep sacrificing year after year after year. They had to do it continually because the blood of bulls and goats cannot erase your sins. It can remind you of your sins and it can point you forward in faith that one day a Messiah will come who will forgive you of your sins. So it was not the sacrifices themselves that saved the people. It was their faith that one day someone would come to wipe away their sins. So they had this temporary, continual, sacrificial system. And then finally, the people were barred from God's presence. God told them how to build a tabernacle, which was like a traveling tent, and then eventually how to build the temple, the permanent structure. And inside, there were two rooms. There was the holy place where the priests would do their duties, and then there was the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where God's presence 
was. And they were, people were not allowed in there. Only the high priest could go in there once a year. Look at Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 7. And by the way, Hebrews here is kind of like the narrator in the background telling you what's going on, explaining what people are thinking. He's kind of the narrator explaining all this to us. So Hebrews chapter 9 verse 7, but only the high priest entered the inner room, so that's the most holy place, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance." So they were barred from God's presence. The people could not go in there. If you went into the most holy place, you're dead, all right? You can't go into God's presence. Why? Because the blood of the bulls and goats could not wash away your sins. You were still a sinner, and so you could not go into God's presence. So this is what we call the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant, it's commonly called. And that's going to come into play for us as we get into the Last Supper. And so what we see in the lives of the Israelites is they were slaves, bad taskmasters leading to death and destruction. God freed them by his power. He spared their lives by the blood of the Lamb. He brought them through the waters of the Red Sea where their slave masters were washed away. He brought them into the wilderness where for 40 years they wandered and they trusted God every day to provide manna from heaven to feed them. And then finally, they made it into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a paradise, a place of rest. This is the journey that God brings the Israelites on. So now we fast forward 1,500 years to Matthew chapter 26. With that in the background, that being the first couple movies that God is writing in his story, we come to Jesus, and it is, in verse 17, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread. So these three festivals, the Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, had sort of been combined into one eight-day festival during the time of Jesus. So it's coming up on the first day then. So this is Thursday during the day. Thursday at sundown is when Passover will start. So it says, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. So they know they have to celebrate it. They have to celebrate it in Jerusalem. The disciples don't know where. And so they ask Jesus, where are we going to do this? Where are we going to go to celebrate the Passover together? There are hundreds of thousands of people here in Jerusalem. They need a house, a place where they can do it. And so Jesus gives them instructions what to do. Now, what's not clear is, is this supernatural knowledge that Jesus just knows about this guy and this house or does Jesus have prearranged plans? It's not clear, so we have to speculate a little bit, but here's my speculation, what I think is going on. Jesus has a plan, all right? He is doing things according to his plan. What did he tell the disciples to tell the man of the house? The teacher says, my appointed time is here. So Jesus, the Jesus, as Pastor Kevin likes to say, has said that there is a specific time that is coming up. Events aren't happening randomly. They're going in a certain order for a certain reason. Because here's the deal. Jesus wants to get this last supper in, his last time with his disciples, to institute that ordinance for us. Jesus needs to be crucified on Friday. 
And here's why. If you remember, the 14th of the month was the Passover when they would sacrifice the lambs. Thursday during the day, it's the 13th. For the Israelites, the new day starts at sundown. So for us, about 8 o'clock tonight when the sun goes down would technically start Monday, May 8th. So Passover, the 14th, will start at sundown, and it'll run, down sun, it'll run from sundown Thursday to sundown Friday. And so Jesus needs to be sacrificed on the 14th, on the Passover, the same day that the Passover lamb was sacrificed. And then if you remember, the, the 15th was the start of the Festival of Unleavened Bread, a day of rest. Jesus will rest in the grave on Saturday, the 15th, and then Sunday, the 16th, he will rise again, and if you remember the feast of first fruits, where you bring in your best, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. So you see, God is writing this story. He's bringing in stuff from the past. This isn't just random events. There is an appointed time for Jesus to die, to fulfill scripture, to be a picture of the Passover lamb in the Old Testament to be a picture of the rest of the unleavened bread, to be a picture of the first fruits. God is tying this huge story together. And so Jesus needs this to happen on Friday. But the deal is this. If you remember last week, Pastor Alex talked about the chief priests now are mad at Jesus. He had his mic drop moment, right? He was in the temple. He did eight woes on the Pharisees. He made them all super angry. And so what do we hear last week? Verse 4 of chapter 26, they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there will be a riot among the people. So they want to arrest Jesus and kill him. They can't do it publicly because there will be a riot. And they have another problem in that Jesus has disappeared. John 11 talks about this. It says, from that day on, the religious leaders plotted to take his life Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. And it says the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so they might arrest him. So they want to kill Jesus. Jesus has stepped back out of the public eye. He's now just in private with his disciples in the shadows, so to speak. There's hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem they can't find Jesus. That's where they need Judas. They need someone who can tell them where Jesus will be in private. Judas says, ah, I'll do it. I'm an insider. I know where he is. And so last week we ended with verse 16. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So Judas is looking for a chance to tell the religious leaders where Jesus is so they can arrest him. And so if Jesus here on the day during Thursday says, all right, guys, you know Thomas, my friend, right? Meet me at six o'clock at Thomas's house. We'll do the Passover there. What's Judas going to do? Run straight to the religious leaders, say he's going to Thomas's house, meet him there, arrest him. Jesus doesn't get to institute the Last Supper. So I think what Jesus is doing here is trying to conceal his plan. So he sends Peter and John, some of his most trusted disciples, say, hey, go to a certain man's house. You'll see a guy carrying a jar of water. Follow him. He's giving them kind of a cryptic message because he wants to have this meal with his disciples, and he knows Judas could throw that off. So he tells the man, the teacher says, I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your 
house. So they go and they start the Passover meal. And that's what we find in verse 20. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. So imagine this. It's Christmas dinner. You're sitting there. You're eating with your family. You got some friends there, and suddenly your mom pipes up. One of you here is going to stab me in the back. It's going to be a shock, right? Unless you're in one of those families. Maybe it wouldn't. But if you're not in one of those families, it's going to be a bit of a shock that Someone like that would say, you, one of you is going to betray me, stab me in the back, and out of nowhere, that's what Jesus says, shocking the disciples, and it says they are very sad. They're grieved that that would happen. I think their pride's hurt a little bit. That's why they, one of the reasons they start asking, surely you don't mean me, Lord. I would never do that. Seriously, Jesus, you're going to accuse me of that? But I think the thing that's more interesting about this is we like to make fun of the disciples, right? Yeah, they're kind of dumb. Yeah, they don't get what's going on. Yeah, things just go right over their head, right? And so we make fun of them a lot. They're fighting over who gets to be the best, and they just don't seem to get it. But one of the things that's interesting about this is they do seem to get it here. Because I don't know about you, but if I were sitting there and Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, I'm going to be sitting there like, yeah, it's Matthew. (laughs) Come on, rich tax collector. He gave up all his money to follow Jesus. Yeah, he's a spy from the Romans. It's got to be Matthew or Thomas. That dude doubts everything. There's no way he could believe it's Jesus. But they don't look around the room starting to question is it that person or that person? They say, is it me? You can't mean me, Lord. Would I really do that? And it's thought-provoking for me to not look at others, but to look at myself. Do I have it in myself that there's times when I should stand up for Jesus and I just don't? There's times that my words or my actions betray him that I don't represent him well. Rather than look at others and see their faults, to see my own, how often do I in life betray Jesus by my words and my actions when others see me? Jesus tells them, it's the one who's dipped in the bowl with him. Well, it's kind of cryptic. It could be any of them, right? They've all been dipping together. It means that it's someone close to him. Because I don't know about you, but I don't just dip with any random person. I'm a bit of a germaphobe. If you double dip, it's all yours, all right? No more salsa for me. So Jesus is telling him, hey, this is someone that is close to me, a close friend that's going to betray me. And they're sad. But look at what he says in verse 24. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. So he says, God has this plan, this appointed time that I'm going to die. It's going to go just like scripture says. 
at the right time, in the right way. It's not going to change. But that does not mean that there's no human responsibility for Judas and his actions. Let's look at the rest of verse 24. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. So Jesus says, Listen, this is going to go according to plan. God has this story. He has the way it's going to happen. He has the timing. This is all God's plan, but that does not mean that Judas is some innocent pawn in all of this. Judas is still responsible for his own actions. Woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And you know, there's a saying, it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. You've probably heard it. Meaning it's better when you love someone, the joy and the pleasure you get from that relationship overcompensates for the pain you feel when you eventually lose them, either in death or because they leave you. That the joy of the relationship makes up for the pain of the loss. Jesus says it's not that way with living in hell. You could have the best life in this earth. You could be Jeff Bezos. You could be Bill Gates, Elon Musk. You could be the king that was just inaugurated. You could be Alexander the Great that conquered the entire world by the time he was 30. You could have the best life in this world, and it will not make up for the horrors of hell. Jesus said in Mark 8, 36 and 37, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And as we heard two weeks ago from Pastor Kevin about the horrors of hell, Jesus says there is nothing you can do in this life that will make hell worth it. He's warning Judas about the path he's on. If you go through with this, it would be better for you not to have existed at all than for you to have existed and spend eternity in hell. It says Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. It's like, what, me? And we don't know, maybe Judas thought he was the good guy in this, that Jesus was messing things up. We know he doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah. Do you notice what he said different from the other apostles? The other apostles, the disciples, they say, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Judas says, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And when you go through the book of Matthew, when someone calls Jesus Lord, shows that they believe that he is Lord, the ruler of their life. They believe that he is the promised Messiah. They believe that he is the son of God. And when they call him rabbi, it means they just believe that he's a good teacher, another prophet, another rabbi, and a long list. And so we see here that Judas does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He's just another prophet, another teacher, and Jesus warns him, if you go down this path, you will regret it. 
And so I just have to ask you, this past few months we've talked a lot about getting ready because you don't know when Jesus will come. We talked a few weeks ago about the horrors of hell. As you look at your life, who's Jesus to you? Is he just another teacher? A good person? Shows us how to love one another? He's just one of many religious leaders? Or is he Lord, the Messiah, the Son of God? That makes all the difference in your life and your eternity. Judas knew he was warned. Jesus said, you have said so. He said, yep, Judas, it's you. It's you. Turn back before it's too late. But Judas didn't. He didn't. And so he was given over to his own devices. And in fact, John 13 tells us that Jesus handed Judas the bread. And as soon as it says, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. He didn't turn Satan came in. Now he's going to do his deed. Jesus says, what you're going to do, do quickly. And it says, Judas got up and left. The other disciples miss what's going on. They're probably having conversations between themselves, trying to figure out who it is. John tells us that they think that Judas is just going to buy more food or that he's going to give money to the poor because he was the treasurer of the group. Well, that'll change your Passover meal, right? <laughs> Having that interchange. And at this point now then, Jesus changes the tune of the Passover. He starts refreshing it, making it different with a different meaning, taking what is old in the Passover, <clears throat> redoing it into something new for the disciples. Look at verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. Luke adds, he tells them, do this in remembrance of me. <clears throat> so just like the Passover was instituted for them to remember their salvation from Egypt, to remember how God in his power brought them out, to remember how the blood of the lamb spared their lives. Now Jesus says, do the Lord's Supper, do the bread to remember my body, which is broken for you. He says, this is my body. And I do want to clarify that we read the Bible literally, but we also understand figures of speech, metaphors, and things like that. So when Jesus says, this is my body, he is not literally saying that this bread becomes my body as you take it. He is saying this bread is representative of my body. Jesus also says, I am the door. That doesn't mean that Jesus is a rectangular piece of wood on hinges. It means that Jesus is the opening that lets you in to heaven. He is the only way in. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. That doesn't mean that as a branch, I've got leaves all over me and I grow grapes out of my ear. It means that I am tied to the vine that is the source of my nutrition, the source of my life, my anchor that holds me. And my job as the branch is to flower and produce fruit, to multiply and to make disciples. And so when Jesus says, I am, this is this bread is my body. He is not saying it literally. He is saying this bread represents my body. Bread representing food, which is the source 
of life. Jesus says, when you eat this bread, remember that I am the source of your life. Without me, you would be dead in your sins on your way to hell. So we take the bread, remembering Jesus as the source of life. Look at verse 27. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So he takes the cup and he gives thanks. And again, he passes it around and says, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And you may have a note in your Bible that says some manuscripts say the new covenant. And so what Jesus is telling them now is we had the old covenant, all right? We talked about that, the Mosaic covenant with the external laws, the continual sacrifices banned from God's presence. Jesus says, now I am instituting a new covenant with you. Hebrews 8.13 says, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. So the old covenant now is gone. Now we have the new covenant in Jesus' blood. And let's look at the terms of that new one. So if you want to go back to Hebrews, you can follow us there back in Hebrews chapter 10. If you remember, the old covenant was an external covenant, 613 laws. This is what you can eat and not eat. This is what you can wear and not wear. Here's all the rules that you have to follow. Hebrews 10, 16, according to Jeremiah 31, says, I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. So no longer is it external 613 laws. Now it's internal dwelling of the Holy Spirit that shows us how to live. The old covenant showed us sin and death. But the new covenant shows us salvation and life. 2 Corinthians 3, 6. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives light. So the letter of the law, the words of the law, shows you sin and death. The spirit shows you life. No longer is it continual sacrifices day after day, year after year. Now we have one permanent sacrifice. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10 and 18. It says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And where these sins and lawless acts have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. So you see there, the body of Jesus is the sacrifice once for all, Sins have been forgiven. Sacrifice is no longer necessary. If it weren't for Jesus, we would be over in Jerusalem today, standing there with our little lamb to sacrifice again because we sinned again. Because of Jesus, we don't have to sacrifice again and again. If it weren't for Jesus, we wouldn't be able to eat bacon. <laughs> but because of Jesus, we can. Hallelujah, right? Hallelujah for that. Jesus was the one permanent sacrifice, his body, once for all. So we don't have to sacrifice again and again and again. And then finally, people were barred from God's presence. You went into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, you're dead. Look at Hebrews 10, continuing in verses 19 and 20. 
Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near to God. So you remember the blood of bulls and goats cannot wash your sins away. All it can do is show you that you're a sinner to place your faith in the Messiah that's coming. Now with Jesus, his blood washes our sins away. And so since I no longer have sin as a believer in Jesus, now I can go into God's presence without death. And we're going to see here in a few weeks when Jesus dies, the curtain in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place is ripped in two from top to bottom. God's showing you the door is open. The blood of Jesus has wiped away your sins, washed them away. You are now welcome in his presence. And so we see Jesus taking what's old. This 1,500-year-old ceremony of remembering God's salvation from Egypt. Remembering how God brought them through the waters of the Red Sea and washed away their slave masters. Remembering how God took them through the wilderness for 40 years, provided for them day after day. Remembering how God brought them into the promised land, the land of rest. Jesus says, don't remember that. Remember me. Because for us, Jesus says in John 8, 34, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. We were slaves as well to our sin, which brought destruction and death. We were saved from our sin by the power of God. The blood of the capital L, Lamb of God, Jesus, saved us from death. We're brought through the waters of baptism where symbolically our slave master, our sin is washed away and we're free. We go through this life in the wilderness, trusting God daily. What did Jesus tell us to pray? Give us today our daily bread. We trust God daily for bread like they trusted God daily for manna. And then eventually we'll enter heaven, paradise, a promised land, a land of rest. Jesus takes this old story that God did through the Israelites. And he says, think of me. Don't remember how God brought you out of Egypt any longer. Remember how God brought you out of a life of sin. Don't remember the blood of the lamb on the door. Remember the blood of the capital L, lamb of God. So Jesus says, look back and remember. But then he says, look forward as well. Because he says, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So Jesus says, this death that's coming up is not the end. As we've been hearing over the past few months, Jesus is coming back to fix the brokenness of the world, to bring justice to make all things new. We take communion looking forward to that day when we celebrate with Jesus. So as we turn to communion, it's a chance for us to remember. Because I don't know, maybe this is just me, maybe this is just James's confession time, but I think as we look at our lives and our society, we're a busy society, right? Yes, somebody, how was your week? Busy? I'm busy. 
We're always busy, right? We run to work, we run home, take the kids here, take them there, grab fast food here. Then we have all our, all our entertainment and our sports and our social get-togethers and our family get-togethers, and we're just busy all the time. And we come in here Sunday because that's what you do, and we love being here, but about this time we start saying, my goodness, is James ever going to shut up? <laughs> The Methodists are probably already done. They're in line getting brunch. Now I'm going to be late and there goes my nap. And oh, We're busy, right? Rushing, rushing. And if we're honest, because of that busyness, a lot of the times what drives our thoughts, what drives our decisions, it's not the things of heaven, but the things of this earth. It's not bad stuff. It's good stuff. How can I do well at work so I can get a promotion, so I can get more money, so I can have a better life for my family? How can I help my kid do well at sports so they can get a scholarship or so they can do good grades so that they can go to a good school so that they can get a good job and have a good life? How can I free up time so that I can play golf because I just need a couple hours away? And what often I think drives our decisions, drives our thoughts, is good things, but things of this earth. And so we find ourselves, rather than looking at our kids and saying, how can I help my child follow Jesus? I look at her and say, how can I help her get a good job? Rather than looking at, hey, in this meeting I've got coming up, how can I best represent Jesus through my attitude, my words, and my actions to point people to the Messiah? I come to the meeting saying, how can I get the result that I want that best benefits me? And functionally speaking, we forget Jesus. So communion is a chance for us to pause for a minute. Remember Jesus. And so in a minute, we're going to take the bread. And so I'm going to give you a minute here to just think on, meditate on, the body of Christ that was broken for you. He was beaten. He was whipped 40 times with a leather whip that had little shards of glass on the end. The doctors tell you whipped 40 times, you would be able to see his internal organs, his bones from the whippings. His beard was ripped out. He was slapped spit upon, a crown of thorns put on his head, not little thorns like on a rose. We're talking like two-inch long thorns jammed down into his skull. The nails in his wrists and his feet. And he did that for you and for me so that we could be saved.